Hi, Hill City family. We're so glad you're with us here today on this Sunday morning. Uh, I know from having watched a couple of these online with all of you that a lot of you are probably saying good morning to each other right about now. And I'm so glad we still get to do that. And if you haven't watched any of our sermons live on Facebook when they premiere, I would encourage you to do that just because it is really fun to see who else is watching and feel like you get a little bit of that human contact even when we can't be in the same room with one another. We're going to continue with our series in James, but before that, I just want to give a shout out to anyone new who's watching, who hasn't actually attended Hill City in the physical sense, but who has joined us online. We are so glad that you are here, and if you are new, please contact us at info at myhillcity.org so we can get back to you, learn a little bit about you, and tell you more about our community here at Hill City. Uh, Before we start, let's pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you for this day, for this opportunity to share your word. I pray, Lord, that you would be with each and every person who is watching this, um, that right now in this moment, uh, when they might be feeling frantic or anxious or lonely or overwhelmed, Lord, whatever they're going through, that you would be with them, that a sense of your peace and your presence would invade the space that they are in and that they would know you care deeply about them and you see them. Pray, Lord, that we would learn something from your word today, that we would have open hearts as we read this passage from James and that we would let it read us in a way that we would really be open to applying your word to our lives as we find out what it means to be a disciple of Jesus pray all these things in Jesus name. Amen. So we're going to pick up where we ended last week in James chapter two. It starts in verse 14. Uh, We're going to go through verse 26 and says this, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the, de- the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. 
we've come to one of the most famous passages from James and the concept for which our series is named Faith That Works. Of course, the subject of faith and works in the book of James has been really controversial over the years. Uh, Martin Luther is famous for coming to this passage and saying that James was a right, strawy epistle whatever that means, I'm pretty sure it was an insult. He ended up putting it at the back of his translation of the Bible. And that view has haunted this epistle because for a great part, at least of modern Western culture or the modern Western church, we've ignored James' letter in favor of many of Paul's letters. Romans, for example, has been studied by so many churches in so many ways. And all of the Bible is helpful and useful for the Christian, but we shouldn't ignore James because of this topic of faith and works. Many feel uncomfortable with it because like we mentioned at the beginning of this series, the letter was clearly not written to an affluent, powerful, or peaceful congregation. Yet we forget this message of James is not all that different from the preaching of Jesus in the Gospels. If we look back at his famous Sermon on the Mount or other passages where he challenged his audience, we'll see very familiar themes to the ones we see here in this passage in James. In Matthew 5, he compares his followers with salt and light, saying both are useless unless they fulfill their purpose. In the same sermon in chapter 6, he talks about giving to the needy and fasting and prayer with the words, when you do this, dot, 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 which means that he expected all of his disciples would do these things. In his famous parable about sheep and goats in Matthew 25, the king tells those judged that they did not go to the least of these, the poor, the imprisoned, the sick, and so instead they will go to eternal punishment. In all these passages and many more, the concept of faith without works is seen as ridiculous. Uh, Jesus portrays it as something that shouldn't be the reality among his followers. Instead, disciples of Jesus, citizens of his new kingdom, are to have faith that produces fruit, faith that works. Maybe our problem is that we compare Paul and James too much instead of actually comparing James's words with those of his older brother, Jesus. And maybe we are so intent on a cheap grace, if you want to quote Bonhoeffer, that we'd rather sacrifice some of the words of Jesus and by connection, some of the words of James, rather than wrestle with the tension here, the tension of faith and works and what this text truly means for our lives. Of course, definitions also help. And so before we dive further into this passage, I'd like to give you a couple. The interesting thing when people compare Paul and James is that they both use the word faith, the Greek word pistis, in very different ways. If you look at the BDAG Bible Dictionary, for example, it uh, says that the in the epistles of Paul, the word for faith is often, though no, not always, but often, used to mean a state of believing on the basis of the reliability of the one trusted. Again, a state of believing on the basis of the reliability of the one trusted. 
This is often uh, the example you might have heard in sermons before of the light switch or the chair that you sit on, right? Somebody will say, well, you have faith in that light switch because you hit it and you don't even pause. You expect the light to pop on. Now, this example falls a bit short when we're talking about the God of the universe and the plan for salvation and uh, redemption through Jesus's death and resurrection. But, you know, pastors tend to do that. We come up with examples that sometimes fall a little short. In James, meanwhile, the word faith is used, as it is here in chapter 2, most often to describe fidelity to teaching. Fidelity to teaching. In other words, knowing and sticking to a certain creed or set of beliefs which is why scholar Scott McKnight describes the faith of James's opponents, which he addresses here, as a creedal faith, a faith based solely on the creeds they believe. This is a faith that knows the right words, the right beliefs, what some have described as a mental assent to Jesus. Of course, it's difficult without more detail to know exactly what James was facing from these opponents, But it seems from his words that they were adhering to right doctrine without living out their belief. So James, unlike Paul in the book of Romans, is combating the ridiculous hypocrisy of some believers in the church community. And he does so, as in other places, with an over-the-top example. Let's go back to verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister without clothes and daily food, oh, is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. I love how the message paraphrase puts it. For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags, half starved, and say, Good morning, friend. Be clothed in Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup. Where does that get you? The answer James is obviously putting forth for his audience is no. No, you cannot claim to have faith and not have deeds. No, such a faith cannot save anyone. No, saying nice things like God bless to someone relying on you for provision is not helpful. By starting at this place, James is linking this section from, uh, with the section we looked at last week from the rest of chapter 2. And I think Isaac did a great job of addressing that last week, so check it out if you haven't already. It's interesting because this is just the sort of example that at first glance seems humorous, almost a parody, but upon closer inspection, it really pierces to the heart of the matter. What really do we value as a culture more than money and control? Have you thought about that before? It is by far easier to say to the homeless person, God bless than it is to help them. It is far easier to say to our family member, I'll be praying for you about that, than it is to get involved. And it is so much easier to turn to our friend and say, I'm thinking of you. 
without actually diving into what they need help with. You think that this is harsh, but James is just getting started. Verse 18 says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good, even the demons believe that and shudder. So here James is bringing in a hypothetical opponent, basically fighting against himself to make sure that this argument is really driven home. He wants to take care of any opponents that might crop up when this letter is delivered and read aloud in the community. On the basis of what James has said so far in the letter, some people might say, okay, so faith and deeds are two separate things. Maybe somebody has faith and somebody has deeds. Um, I guess I'm like the faith person and you're the deeds person. But they're making a fundamental mistake by dividing these things into two categories. James says, hey, imaginary opponent, hold on a second. I've been saying it all along, you can't have faith without deeds. The two are inseparable. You think somehow you can just believe without doing anything to back it up? Demons do that. They believe there is one God. So what separates you from the demons? Your deeds. Then James goes full tilt into proofs for his argument. I love to imagine him all fired up when he's writing this, you know, like really scribbling away uh, some, like some bro on a forum or some woman responding to a rant on Facebook. In, in a good way though, you know? Uh, it's funny too to think they had parchment and pens back then because I've gotten really into writing a sermon before but I never had to stop to get more parchment or fill up the ink well. So yeah, anyway, random side note there. But it's interesting because James is going all out for this argument and where else would a Jewish rabbi go but the Old Testament? So he brings it home with some examples from there. Remember, this is the scripture of the early church. They didn't have the Gospels. They didn't have Paul's letters yet, probably. All they had was the Old Testament as their scripture. And as a primarily Jewish Christian audience, they knew the Old Testament very well. So he says, look at the example of Abraham. Verse 21, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, the paragon of Jewishness, the, the first recipient of that covenant relationship with God, is taken as an example for James's argument. Of course, James is letting his audience kind of find their equilibrium here before he hits them with a really uh, out of the blue one-two punch because the next example he brings up is Rahab. Rahab, the prostitute, the Gentile, the resident of Jericho. Do you remember Rahab? You can find her story in Joshua chapter two and chapter six. She was a prostitute who lived in Jericho and offered shelter to the spies that had come into the city as Israel was preparing to take over the promised land. When the king of the city gets wind of this and starts looking for the spies, she ends up hiding them from him. And she has an amazing declaration of faith 
She tells the spies she's heard all about their God and the amazing things he's done. In Joshua 2.11, she says, When we heard of it, meaning the mighty deeds of Yahweh, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven, above and on earth below. Rahab, probably considered the lowest of the low to these people, is being held up as an example because of her amazing declaration of faith, along with her actions that she took to save the spies. She hid them, and then she also took the further step of faith and hung a red cord out her window, even though it might have signaled to somebody that something was going on before the Israelites had their victory. As a result of her faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel, Rahab and her entire family were saved from the destruction of the city. This is remarkable though. Abraham, the pinnacle of Jewish faith, is held up next to Rahab, who I would like to say is the pinnacle of Gentile faith. She put her faith in the God of Israel. But I don't think James's audience had seen her in this light before. And it's interesting because when we hold up Rahab, we also think about all the not so great things Abraham did. I mean, like pretending his wife was his sister just to save his own skin and going along with a plan to take a mistress, Hagar, even though he knew God had promised to give them a son through Sarah. So when you look at it that way, what a perfect example James is giving us of the gospel that Abraham and Rahab, you and me, stand equally before God and are saved by our faith that's shown by works. And here I think is another argument that James isn't promoting some type of off-brand Christianity or off-brand gospel. Instead, he is pointing to the reality that saving faith has its work done in the lives of people we hold up and people we despise. He's doing work, God is doing work in our lives, he's doing work in your life, and he can do work in anyone's life who will let him. Remember the hypothetical opponent trying to separate faith and deeds? Well, he ends this passage by addressing that opponent again with a concluding statement that I think is really, really helpful. In verse 26, you almost get the impression that James has taken a deep breath. He stopped his frantic scribbling for a moment and he's just gonna give the final blow. I kind of imagine him doing it a bit like a stand-up comedian. Uh, you know what they call a body without a spirit? A corpse, mic drop. But seriously, what a great example. James was anticipating an argument that would try to separate faith and works. And he's saying, you can't do that. They're interconnected. It's fine for somebody to say that, oh, I believe and I do some good things, but really those things shouldn't be put in two categories at all. They are intimately connected. It is impossible to be a disciple of Jesus without following the pattern of life that Jesus has set out for us. 
Yeah, you might know the Shema, he's saying. Yeah, you might know the Ten Commandments. Yeah, you, you might sing all the songs in church and make sure you're there for Christmas and Easter. But without works, if that's all you have, if a person looking at you couldn't tell if you believe in Jesus or Buddha or Trump or Biden or any other person that you might hold up on a pedestal, if a person looking at you couldn't tell if you are a Mormon or a Christian or a Hindu, then what good is your faith? Those works are what separate us and give witness to the power of God in us. If there is nothing about your life that says, I belong to Jesus, he calls the shots about my money, my life, my possessions, my family, my future, my everything, then what good is your faith? Thank the Lord that we are people of a resurrection that we are people who serve a God of second chances, and that even right now, wherever you're at in your walk, if this is resounding with you and you think, yes, I have been that type of person, thank the Lord that it's not over yet, that we can turn in repentance to him and say, I have been wrong in this area. I have been too caught up in the mental belief in Jesus instead of committing everything I am to him. I just want to take a moment and ask you, even where, if you're in your living room or kitchen or if you're struggling to listen to this video, can you take a moment and just be quiet before God and have that chance to say to him, Lord, forgive me for the ways I've done this in my life. God, would you just please forgive me for the ways I haven't followed you, for how similar my life looks to the ways of the world. Thank you for the grace you've given me that I can turn to you as your follower, as your child, and trust that you will forgive me and work in me your good plan. I don't want to turn too quickly from this thought or this prayer. And the nice thing about videos is you could pause it if you want to, if you need to spend some time with God. But I want to end with a note of encouragement. It's funny because when I was planning this sermon, I was thinking that the application section would, all, would be all about uh, how we have a faith that doesn't work and how that has affected our world and how that's affected our nation and how that has affected our individual lives. But honestly, I think you guys can draw those conclusions for yourself. What I really want to do is offer a word of encouragement to the people who are living out their faith. Because I know so many of you, and I have witnessed so many of you, especially during this time, who have really stepped into doing good deeds. And I want to encourage you in that. It's funny because so often we feel like we are alone and the enemy comes to attack us when we're actually living out our faith. But I want you to know those good deeds you're doing are not unseen. One of my favorite uh, passages of scripture is in Galatians 6, 9 through 10, and it says this, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. 
Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. I want to encourage you, if you are in the midst of that, if you're trying to walk out your faith, if you're giving to causes and sewing masks and trying to reach out to your neighbor, you're not unseen. God sees you. Other people in this this church see you and are encouraged by you. And I want to say to you, don't give up. Don't grow weary. Don't stop doing good. I know that uh, some of us need to be reminded that seeds are sort of invisible things. You know, they're these tiny little things we put in the ground, we cover them up with dirt, and we don't see what's going on underneath in the soil as they're growing. And then, of course, even when they start growing, they look pathetic and a little wimpy, right? They don't look very impressive. But if you've ever seen a cornfield or a wheat field at harvest, you know that those tiny little things grow into a remarkable harvest. And that's what God is talking about in this passage in Galatians, that our good works, these tiny things that we're doing, these steps of faith we're taking may not look like much right now, but the Holy Spirit is doing work in your heart, tilling the soil. And at harvest time, it is going to be beautiful to see what he has done in your life. When you remain faithful, you carry on with endurance, and you don't let the enemy discourage you. I think the enemy would like nothing better than to encourage us to stop, to just give up. Nobody's watching anyway. Everyone's arguing on Facebook. Our neighbors are grumpy. The stores are hectic. But God says, don't give up. Look at those seeds. Look at those tiny stalks that are growing up. And remember that a harvest is coming, that the God of the harvest is faithful. And it is he who is working in you to do more than you could think or imagine. I love the simple prayer in Nehemiah 6.9. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. Dear Lord, we just pray that you would strengthen our hands for the work that you have given us. That we would not give up, that we would not grow weary, that we would remember that the work you're doing in us is lived out, is shown to our neighbors, our family, our nation, through the good deeds we do in honor of you. We pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would empower each and every one of us to walk with you faithfully, to not settle for a mental ascent, but instead to dig deeper into maturity as we follow after Jesus. I thank you that that is happening in the lives of so many at Hill City, that there are people that this work is being done in that we don't even know about because the seeds are hidden right now. But we trust you, Lord, that you are doing something amazing, that your word does not come back void, and that you will continue to work in our lives, in our church, in our community, for your glory and for our good. We thank you for who you are, Lord, that you are the Lord of the harvest, that you are faithful to us, even when we have strayed from what we should be doing. We pray, Lord, you would encourage us throughout this week, 
and throughout every single day we spend with other people to just live as that city on a hill. In Jesus' name, amen.